It is a nearly universal experience. It's probably the first game that you ever played. The rules aren't written down anywhere, but every one of us knows how to play the game. It's not done in organized leagues. There aren't any uniforms to the game. There's no special equipment that's needed. And in spite of that, everyone that I've ever met knows how to play the game. You know what the game is? It's called peekaboo. Here's how it goes. First you peek, then you... You guys are sharp. It's our first lesson in life that we have the ability to hide and reveal certain things about ourselves. And psychologists who I think have a little too much time on their hands, have actually studied the game peekaboo. They have. And they've determined that it plays a significant role in what's known as the attachment theory in our development. You stare at a baby too long while you're playing this game, and they'll look away, avert your glance. Spend too much hiding from the baby, and they get anxious, they start to cry. Some of you with a twisted side now want to find a baby and do that and see if it works. You can do that by volunteering for Westridge Crossing, work in the nursery during second service this morning. Who knew that peekaboo was deeply psychological? In spite of what you'll tell me after this service, you didn't know. But we all go on in life to develop, to perfect this ability to keep part of ourselves hidden part of our story, part of our pain, part of our struggle, and only reveal certain parts of ourselves. It's happened since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, ate the forbidden fruit, and later on they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid in the garden. They hid behind fig leaves. And it wasn't just their bodies they were trying to hide. They were trying to hide their sin, their shame, their story. And ever since that day, every one of us has carried scars and wounds and pain. And ever since that day, it's been a part of the human existence to try to hide as if our lives depend on it. Hi. My name is Kylie Plum, and I just wanted to say a few things about Westridge. When you come in for the first day, everyone welcomes you right in. They get to know you. They get to understand you. And they just make you so comfortable. Every one of the leaders is so nice, and they just understand me. Westridge is my church. So we hide. And we hide as if our life depends on it. But that's not the way God designed us to relate to him or to relate to each other. It's not the way he designed church to function. There needs to be an honesty and an integrity in our relationships. And the simplest way I know to say it is just what we've said in the title of the message this morning. He calls the church to be real. And if that's going to happen, then I need to declare in my life that I am real. 
A real church is filled with real people who live their lives authentically. That means I'm the same person no matter where you encounter me. At church, at work, on the golf course, at home, no matter where we cross paths, my language, my behaviors, my interactions with you are consistent. For better or worse, I am who I am. I'm the same person even when no one is looking. I don't think anybody in life ever sets out to be two different people. It just happens. And sometimes we can slowly create a more polished person, a more polished image of ourselves that we present in certain environments, even at church. One of us is incredibly happy that we present at church. We have a well-adjusted family when we talk about them at church. We live a super desirable lifestyle when we talk about it in public. And any challenges or temptations we face, well, we always overcome them in the end. We paint a picture of a life that everybody wishes they had. In fact, when we talk about it, we wish we had that life. Others of us will go to the other extreme and create a more raw version of ourselves for church. Because we want to fit in. That was me early on in my Christian life. In the 70s, in the college I went to, it was a cool thing to stand up around a campfire and tell your testimony of how you came into a relationship with Jesus. And a lot of my friends had led a rugged path to come to Jesus. They talked about how they'd been involved with drugs and drinking in their teenage years. They talked about how they ran away from home and rebelled against really strict parents who just didn't get them. One of my friends that I uh, knew for a long time, knew really well, uh, ran away from home. His dad was a pastor. He rebelled. He ran away from home. He ended up hitchhiking across country at 16, 17 years old with nothing but his backpack and a guitar. He had a very cool story. He was a good-looking guy. He dated lots of cool girls with that story, and I didn't. Um, Everybody shared cool, incredible stories around the campfire, and eventually they all would share their stories, and the focus would turn to me. And all I had was what I just called at that point testimony envy. Because my story wasn't that dynamic. It just wasn't. I mean, I accepted Christ at the age of seven in a good, solid Christian family. Um, I was the compliant child in my family. I was a straight-A student. I never got in trouble. I was friends with my teachers. I was good friends with the vice principal in my high school. I was valedictorian of my high school class. I never smoked pot. I never did drugs. I didn't taste alcohol until I was in my 30s. I don't fit in at Westridge. Um, <laughs> there I said it. When I, when I, if I started a small group with that affinity principle, it'd be solitude. Um, when I graduated high school, I went to Bible college and I became a pastor, something I said from the time I was two that I felt like God was leading me to do, you know? That's a pretty boring testimony around a campfire in the 70s. So I found myself wanting to embellish my testimony and make my story most, more interesting, you know? Make my parents evil, you know, and that, that I had a horrible home life or just embellish it in some way just so I could fit in. Unfortunately, 
all of us are prone to do this in some way in our lives. It's what psychologists call the imposter's phenomenon. In some area in our lives, we make stuff up. And it leaves us with a sense that at some level, we're faking it in our lives. In the sense that if anybody ever really found out the truth about us, they wouldn't love us. They wouldn't like us. They wouldn't want to be around us. And what's odd is we get really skillful at this impression management, and we do it so that people will accept us and love us. And the, the, the reality is the more we do impression management, the more we have this deep abiding sense that we're really alone and no one loves us. It's not how God designed us to live or the church to work. We're supposed to be real. If you look at the early church in Acts 2, 46 and 47, Luke describes the habits of those early Christians and says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were honest and truthful with each other about who they were. They learned to stop pretending to be anything other than what they really were. Being real requires one version of us. Now, you may be a little more refined, hopefully, when you go out in public. You don't scratch and spit as much in public as you do at home. Maybe that's just my family. But you should be able to say that you are the same person no matter what environment people encounter you in. You're real. Being real also means that we're free to be human. I live my life with transparency. Integrity says what you see is what you get. Transparency says what you see is a normal human being. But even in this area of being human, we like to pretend. Now, we do this on Sunday mornings. We greet each other. Hey, how are you doing this morning? And the standard answer is? Fine. Fine. Really? Now, that's an efficient answer. It's a practical answer to say fine. It's much better than saying, you know, thanks for asking. My shoulder I had surgery on five months ago isn't really good. I'm, it's bothering me. My kids are frustrating me, and I'm ticked that I put on 20 pounds over the summer, and winter's right around the corner when I put on another 20 pounds, typically. My spouse and I got in a fight on the way to church this morning, and I'm wrestling with the fact that God isn't answering my prayers. That's how I am this morning. How are you? Now, we don't want every exchange on Sunday morning to be like that, do we? But the truth is, we aren't all fine this morning, are we? No. Honestly, how many of you are not fine this morning? Really? Four of us? I would guess not all of us are fine this morning. As human beings, we get tired, we get discouraged, we get frustrated. We are not always certain what our next step is of growth is spiritually. Life as a believer is far from simple. And the image that's portrayed sometimes in Christian films and Christian songs doesn't help us with that. It's just a little bias that I have. Sometimes in Christian stuff, what gets portrayed is that in our B.C. days, before Christ, everything's a mess in our lives. 
And somehow when we accept Jesus, in short order, everything gets fixed. Miraculously, when you accept Jesus, everything changes. You know, one of the films that I have that's kind of my stereotype of this says that, you know, the team that you're coaching can't win a game, and it's when you accept Jesus, they'll win the state championship. Your infertility problems will be solved, and your wife will get pregnant. You're going to be given a new car. You're going to get a new job or a raise. Your spastic, disobedient children will become perfect, and all your hair will grow back <laughs> in all the right places. Now, I'm over-exaggerating a bit, but the truth is that image, when it's portrayed, isn't realistic, it isn't sustainable, and it's not biblical. We are human. Read the Bible. Elijah got tired. Peter got hungry. And when he got hungry, he got grumpy. Paul got ticked off at his best friend. There isn't a single example in the Bible of a leader who didn't struggle with his humanity. In fact, Paul in his writings, went to great lengths to make sure that people in churches knew that he struggled with his humanity. Listen to just one section of his writing, my favorite from Romans 7. He says, The trouble is with me, for I am all too human. I am a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. And I've discovered this principle in life, Paul says, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. If you can't relate to that, you need to check your pulse. Being transparent about our humanity means that we admit that sometimes we struggle in our walk with God. We struggle with our marriage. Being a Christian doesn't exempt us from feeling clueless about our kids and our parents at times. And sometimes in the same hour. Sometimes we'll wrestle with balancing our faith and our doubt. It's all a part of the human condition, and none of us, none of us gets a pass. None of us. And my prayers are often no more eloquent than that of the little boy who once prayed, Dear God, I'm doing the best I can. Frank. That's real. That's human. Being real also means admitting I'm broken. We live our lives with a mixture of strengths and weaknesses. Somehow, somewhere along the line, I think we may have gotten the image or the vision that if we follow the the right plan or practice and we do the right disciplines, we'll inch closer and closer to spiritual perfection. And if we sin, it will only be tiny little sins. You know, like forgetting to tip or cheating on a golf score. Little sins. You know, we might have been saved by grace, but we'll work our way to spiritual perfection. All of this in spite of the biblical evidence to the contrary. David, 
the spiritual and military leader of Israel. David, a man described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Loved God deeply. Walked with God all of his life. And after a lifetime of following God, still seduced Bathsheba, stole her away from her husband, and had her husband Uriah murdered. Peter, the apostle, succumbed to hypocrisy and, if you push it, could call what he did racially motivated. Bigotry. When he refused to eat with Gentiles in front of his Jewish friends and co-workers. Peter, one of the founders of the church. That was after he brought Cornelius to faith in Christ and opened the gospel to those who weren't Jews. We are and will continue to be a work of God in process all of our lives. And that's a tough lesson to learn. My life, my life with God has continued to expose broken places in me for more than 40 years. I continue to see on an ongoing place, on an ongoing basis, ways that I am broken. Ways that I need to work on my relationship with God and the people around me, ways that I hurt them unintentionally and intentionally at times, how, I'm, how broken I am in the ways that I react to situations and people, ways that I'm broken in my thoughts. I am broken in so many ways. And what we learn as we walk with God is this, is that God's work in our lives will not be finished until the day that we see Jesus face face. Spiritual maturity is not about reaching spiritual perfection. It's about trusting God in our humanness with all of our messiness. I love the verses that you read in the Bible where you read them and you go, okay, that was strange. What does that mean? In Proverbs, it's at Proverbs 14, it says, Without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. I've read that for years, and I go, okay. You dig into it a little deeper, and you go, okay. So you can have a clean barn with no animals in it. But you aren't going to get much done without any animals. With the animals comes mess. In this context of what we're talking about today. We can have a clean, tidy church as long as there are no people in it. We can, with a lot of work, even with people in the church, create a neat, orderly church with no problems, no chaos, no challenges. But to do that, we have to work really hard together at hiding our stuff, not being real, not bringing our humanness and our brokenness out. Not be real. But a real church requires that we show up with all of who we are. And showing up like that means the church is going to get messy at times. There are going to be problems. And when there's problems between us, we have to talk to each other and work those things out. And yet being real is so much more freeing than being fake and phony. Being real means we can be loved with all of who we are, with all of our warts and bumps 
and bruises. But that's not the whole story. Many of us find a church like this. We find that we've kept garbage hidden in our lives for years, and now we can bring it out of the basement, make it known. And that's freeing. And the temptation is to take all the garbage out of the basement, dump it on the front lawn, and go, hey, I'm done. I'm free. All my garbage is exposed. We've told our story, but that's only part of the journey. Self-disclosure alone doesn't cure our deeper fallenness. It's as if Hitler were to say, well, I may be a genocidal psychopath, but that's just who I am. Doesn't cut it. We don't need just self-disclosure. We need more. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need healing. We need to be accountable. Hebrews 3 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to live our lives with a circle of friends who will help us grow. People who know us and love us, who will do what Ephesians 4.15 says and speak the truth to us in love. All of us need to be in accountable relationships with people who are regularly, daily, Hebrews says, encouraging us to live more like Jesus. Because sin, it's deceitful. Stuff in my life that other people see, I don't always see. And I need people in my life who know me well enough to say to me in a loving way, hey, stop it. Or, hey, this stuff you need to be doing, get with it. Let's get going. I need people who, as Hebrews 10 says, will encourage and motivate me towards acts of love and good works. For 30 years, I've been developing those relationships in my life in community groups of all kinds. And they've cost me the one thing that I thought I had the least of, time. But it's been worth it. Those relationships have not only helped me grow and learn, They've given me strength for the journey. And after 30 years of being in those relationships, I don't know any other way to do life in Christ. I don't know any other way to make it. We need those kinds of relationships to make it to the finish line with our faith intact. But being real is risky. Give you fair warning. Mm -hmm. Being real can lead to messiness in our lives. It can lead to changes that we need to make. It can lead to growth, and it's not always easy. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, from getting the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us he had this radiant glow on his face. His face shone, kind of like a Cancun tan in mid-February. And the Bible tells us that the nation of Israel saw him when he came down, and they were actually afraid of him because of this glow. And so Moses decided to wear a veil. 
over his face so that he could talk to the people without them being afraid. What was interesting, though, was that over time, 2 Corinthians tells us, over time, the glory of that glow started to fade. And eventually, it went away. But Moses decided to hide. He made the choice to continue to wear the veil so that nobody knew that the glory had gone away. Every single one of us this morning has a choice to make, just like Moses did. Will we wear a veil and hide? Or will we be real? Will we be open? Share our humanness. Share our brokenness. It has been the tendency of every human being since the fall of man to hide as though our life depends on it. That tendency is exactly wrong. Our life depends on being found.